You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 9th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here at Midori House in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. Hello and a very good morning to you if you just tuned in. It's Monocle on Saturday with me, Emma Nelson, broadcasting you to you from a very special Midori house here in London. It's the Christmas market weekend. Starting in a little while in an hour's time, live coverage throughout the day from Midori House. But before we open our doors, let's look to what we've got in the next 30 minutes. We'll be going through the week's news and culture. The writer and broadcaster Yasmin Abdelmajid is with me. Good morning, Yasmin. What have you spotted? Well, we've got the EU agreeing historical AI regulation laws. We'll touch on the UN Security Council's recent resolution. I look forward to it then. Now, as soon as you step inside, it's an entirely different world. I'm now in a five-storey tall open atrium with a pond in the middle. Monaco's Lars Bavanga visits Oslo's old US embassy, which has been turned into a restaurant, bar and event space. And we'll be joined by the arts and culture communications specialist Isabella Orlando to talk about heritage-inspired spaces around the world. That's what's coming up here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Emma Nelson. And a very warm welcome. Let's have a quick look at the headlines first. The US has faced fierce criticism for blocking a UN Security Council resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Human Rights Watch is warning that the US risks complicity in war crimes for using its veto. Um, Six teenagers have been convicted for their part in the beheading of a history teacher near Paris. Uh, European Union officials have reached a provisional deal on the world's first comprehensive laws to regulate the use of artificial intelligence. And a US senator has called for a government investigation into the impact on national security of garlic imports from China, saving unsta- citing, I should say, unsanitary production methods. Uh, that's what the papers are talking about today. Well, not the papers, the news headlines. Let's talk about the papers. I'm delighted to say Yasmin Abdel-Majid, writer and broadcaster, regular, very warm welcome to you. To the, to the studio. Um, we're feeling a little discombobulated, aren't we? Because normally Saturday and Sunday here at Midori House, it's a very chilled affair. It's a quiet affair. It can be quite a solitary affair because, you know, the, the hustle and bustle of the, of, of the week is, is not here. Slightly different today. It's the Monocle Christmas Market. We've done this a few times. It opens in an hour's time. It's going to be super fun. This is your first time, isn't it? It is, yes. So you've sort of seen the the kind of like the just before it happens moment. What's your first impressions apart from it's raining? So I'm quite excited. I'm slightly worried about my wallet. I will be honest with you, Emma, because I saw the specialised Japanese gift wrapping. I saw like just I peeked at a couple of different stalls which had, you know, classic monocle design like the sort of the taste that I know Monocle has and I the and good I, stuff the, the good stuff and I thought to myself those could be good pr- Christmas presents or good festive season presents or they just could be great in my own home I'm not sure so we'll see how generous I'm feeling after after we finish it, this broadcast it's a difficult thing isn't it because you do I, I, Christmas shopping is great but then it becomes a it becomes a moment when you start thinking 
oh, I like that. Right, exactly. And you have to stop the, oh, I like that. And then, <laughs> when I find that my narrative in my household comes, starts off with, husband says, what do you want for Christmas? Oh, nothing this year. Let's just get something together. Let's buy tickets for something, this, that and the other. And then you're out and about and you just think, oh, that's nice. Right. And you go home and you say, actually, if you were to buy me this, could right. we have a... Mm. Exactly. May I have a? Mm. So I, I mean, I grew up in a Sudanese Muslim family. <laughs> Christmas was never really, you know, a big thing. And I mean, Christmas was the day that everything was closed. That was that was usually. But conversely, I, in London, everything right. is open. <laughs> everything is on open. the Edgware right, Road exactly. on a Christmas day. It's awesome. But also, my my husband's family celebrates Christmas, and so I've had to get used to the the idea that I remember the first time Christmas happened, I was very excited. I got involved in putting up the tree. It was all incredibly novel, and then it. Came around very quickly once again, and I was like, "Wait, wait! I just bought gifts for everybody. I have to do this again." And yeah, it, t- it turns out that it's an annual event. That... So you grew up in Brisbane, yes, right? Brisbane, Australia. And and what was Christmas like in Brisbane, Australia? Because a, you're Sudanese Muslim, so you're not doing it. Um, and b, it's hot. It's hot. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I had always associated Christmas with barbecues, and you know, which 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 I've learned in Europe, in London, is is not at all what people are thinking of when they're thinking of Christmas. Okay, I can see why the Monocle Christmas market is the source of endless fascina- fascination. Because, there, well, there aren't any barbecues, but there is some, There's there are 300 portions, ladies and gentlemen, of goulash. And yesterday there was a gentleman cutting enough onions for 300 portions of goulash. <laughs> the poor man was there in the Monocle kitchen for two and a half hours. And yes. I can't, e- there aren't even words to describe the poor man's face, having <laughs> having just put himself through all that. He didn't say very much. That's all I can, all I can he was say. He committed to the gulag. Yes, it, while he was committed to just <laughs> slicing all those onions, it was it was phenomenal. Um and then also we have melted cheese on the raclette stand outside. So Ooh. so no barbecues, but there will no, be I mean the one of my food. favorite things about winter in cold countries is raclette, melted cheese on like I am technically lactose intolerant, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> It doesn't matter. This is a choice I am making. Okay. For, like eyes wide open because it is so good. Like Going potatoes warm. and melted cheese in a warm combination. I just listen. Okay. So anybody <laughs> your, who your is buying. Your face is quite concerned. No, about. it's not. I have a raclette thing at home. It's Amazing. a perfect. And I've just suddenly thought, Yasmin's coming over for dinner. We'll perfect. get the raclette out. And anyone, if you are thinking of buying Yasmin Abdelmajid a Christmas <laughs> present, raclette machines are available all over the world. Okay. Monocle Christmas Mark. Oh, we've got Father Christmas coming as well. He's oh, coming from Reverend Yeby. Yeah, oh, we'll, we'll fantastic. Introduce you. Uh, right, that's done. So everybody, if you are at home listening to your radio, I'm I'm assuming the hats, cloaks, gloves, galoshes, shopping bags, etc., are being pulled on while you're listening to the next half hour. Because Yasmin and I are going to go through the papers to, to to sort of talk about stuff that you don't need to look at it. We're doing work for you. Uh, what have you spotted? Well, so the first big piece of news that um, has come out today, or will announced late last night was the EU agreeing to historic deal with the world's first laws to regulate AI. And this is, I think, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, especially with the introduction of ChatGPT and um, all of these sorts of things that have now been in, in people's, right in front of people, really. I think this has been something that people have been talking about, not just at the business level, but also it's entered the public conversation. And there's always the sense that regulation is 
much slower than how fast business and tech are moving. So this is quite a big deal. And it's also interesting that it's coming out of the EU and not necessarily the US or China or other places. So this really puts the EU at the front, at the forefront of, of AI regulation. How, I mean, it does beg the question, though, that, I mean, they always used to think, think about how how catch up is the mm. is the main main reaction to to this given the fact that for years and years we've been talking about work the world of work in the united states at least for the last 4 or 5 years ai has been a regular in in integrated part of recruitment human resources all that kind of stuff and people were just literally buying ai packages off the shelf at the time 100%. and and now the european union's coming along and saying hang on a minute right so how do we think it's going to try and do this it's quite interesting so the foundation of the agreement is this sort of risk based tiered system where you've got the highest level of regulation applying to machines that in the words um, of the agreement pose the highest th- risk to health, safety and human rights. But what you've pointed to, Emma, I think is really interesting, which is the term AI itself, when we talk about regulating AI, is quite nebulous. And, and it's also quite reflective of where we are in technology's evolution. Like 50 years ago, the kinds of technologies that are in our phones that do predictive text were considered artificial intelligence, right? Today, what's considered artificial intelligence is generative, you know, making images out of lots of other images and so on. So I think the EU has tried to find a way to approach that. But I do think that, I mean, and I'm going to have to sit down and have a look at, you know, the details of the agreement. I do think they... It, they are constantly having to deal with this this sense of how do we create a framework that will be able to keep up with what's going on. One interesting thing I wanted to point out was this ban of real-time surveillance and biometric technologies, including emotional recognition, because there's there's been reports of, you know, sh- shops using um, real-time surveillance and trying to sort of use emotional recognition, which isn't even something that it, it, this idea of sentiment analysis people think works a lot better than it actually does. Um, but they are, there are exceptions, which is the use of such invasive technologies in the event of a terrorist attack, in the event of a prosecution of a serious crime, and the need to search victims. So I think from from my perspective, and I think from the perspective of, of activists, you know, there's a sense that, okay, this is broadly a positive move, but are these exceptions actually going to still open up the areas for risk for vulnerable people in communities, particularly in the EU? Indeed, and you have to sort of wonder how much of the the problems that the EU law is trying to address is is, is a deliberate intended mm-hmm. desire by someone to single out a certain group of people or this kind of the, the other. But the difficulty that we've had with AI up until now in, in one large area is that, well, AI is kind of divided into two areas, isn't it? It's, it's it is the gathering of the information, right. which is a, a sort of a, a, a neutral and, and reasonably innocent game in itself. You know, the, the information itself is right. innocent. Yeah. But it is how it is, the metrics which are mm-hmm. then applied to that information, which mm-hmm. then cause the problem. The metrics are, de- are decided, de- decided by people. Right. And you will, and, and one of the big problems that we've had with AI is that the bias 100%. that comes is inherently because of the kind of people who who are, who are creating the metrics. Right. And one wonders whether the EU can actually mm. um, manage or, or or sort of regulate this this fact that human decisions mm. are ultimately what drives AI. 
Yes, and I think this is an interesting philosophical question kind of baked into um, some of these challenges. Because if you're thinking about how do you, quote unquote, de-bias AI, there are different positions on how to do that. Do you go back into the data and create synthetic data that sort of balances everything out into what might be a, quote unquote, free and fair um, system? To give it, To give people an example, so, you know, uh, some of these predictive technologies will be kind of like in the Minority Report, in in that old film, The Minority Report, looking at, okay, if somebody gets arrested, what is the chances that they will um, re-offend or what is the chances that that they will sort of escape bail? So, and, and all of that data is based on the decisions that judges have made in the past. And if judges have been biased towards particular groups, say black and brown young people, then that's going to be baked in. Do you like completely disregard um, what judges have done in the past. That makes it very difficult to use the data. Do you come up with new data that sort of equalizes things out? Well, then how is that reflective of a real world? How do you make these choices? And this is some of the really hard work. I'm really curious to see how the EU has um, come to a resolution around these sorts of things. But I think it will continue to be an issue going forward. Uh, Let's have a quick look at another story that you brought to our attention, which is about uh, visa-free travel in Africa. This is a a big economic step for the likes of Botswana, which thrives on tourism, isn't it? Exactly. So Zimbabwe and Botswana have introduced a visa-free travel deal and they're in the process of negotiating the agreement at the moment. But it's quite exciting because they're joining a growing list of African countries that are implementing these bilateral agreements. And and Zimbabwe's president said, you know, the two of us have agreed because we're African which, you know, I think, interesting statement, but we'll continue. And we should, he says we should be able to walk into Botswana, walk into Zambia, walk into Kenya. Why should we restrict our, ourselves? And so they join, you know, the Seychelles, Rwanda, the Gambia and Benin, who currently offer you know, complete visa-free entry to Africans. But they're also part of a growing group of, um, you know, Namibia, South Africa, Ghana, Uganda and the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, have also entered into reciprocal visa waiver agreements. And this comes off the back of, you know, the African Union trying to push for an African passport, trying to sort of push back against these sort of old colonial borders and say, well, okay, is there a way that we can make the continent more accessible? Because it is actually quite difficult. If you're a Sudanese passport holder, for example, my, my, my family attempted to go to a holiday many years ago to Morocco and got rejected, right? And you're like, guys, we're, we're you know, we're, we're not that far from each other. But the process is very onerous and so on. So I think it's quite interesting to see this shift towards um, visa-free travel. And I mean, the hope for someone, I think, for many young people is a future that looks like the free movement that you have in in the EU, Uh, uh, an environment where everybody in the continent and and citizens um, of African nations can move around freely and they can all benefit from, you know, from one another. So So we'll see if that happens. The joy of the European Union system is it's all, well, not joy, but the the efficiency of it is it's all centrally controlled. Right. So, so, there how, has does, to be trust, so how does right? this now work? Right? <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, I think these are things that we'll, we'll have to be kind of figured out. I don't think there's trust in the African Union as a, as a um, institution at the moment, but that doesn't preclude that from happening in the future. I think the aspiration is certainly there. Um, but it's, I think these bilateral moves are steps towards that final. It, it's it's a way to move towards the visa-free society without having it centrally controlled. And, and maybe, I mean, I, I presume actually that what 
the AU or what the you know, the free movement in Africa will look like will be quite different from from a centralized European. Partly also because the, it's an enormous continent, um, and the, Europe is much smaller geographically, and so you're able to sort of have tighter controls um, in a way that I think will will have to be redesigned for for a much larger continent. Uh, stay with us. Um Yasmin, because we're going to be talking about um, heritage buildings right now. Um, and we're going to head to Oslo for this, because American embassy is among the best protected buildings in the world, but this hasn't always been the case. When the US embassy in Oslo in Norway opened in 1959, it was a cultural hub with a library and regular concerts for the locals. However, increased global tension and events like 9-11 brought this all to an end. And the embassy has sat empty since diplomats moved to new quarters in 2017. This has now thrown its doors open once again with a collection of restaurants, bars, a music venue and even a gym on the old site. Monocle's Oslo correspondent Lars Bavanger went to check it out. The last time I entered this building, it was to get a travel visa for the States and I had to walk past armed guards and many layers of security. Now the guards and fences are all gone and this sharply triangular, slightly stern-looking building is open for me and anyone else to saunter straight into. Now, as soon as you step inside, it's an entirely different world. I'm now in a five-storey tall open atrium with a pond in the middle. From here runs a warren of hallways, ending in large rooms, which are now filled with high-end eateries, among other things. My name is Marianne Paulson, and I am uh, half of the duo Paulson and Nielsen Interior Architecture Company. And we have had the great pleasure of working on this Aero Saarinen designed embassy. Architect Marianne Paulson has taken on quite a project. Finnish American Eero Saarinen was one of the world's leading modernist designers, creator of the iconic tulip chair, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, and Dulles Airport, to mention a few of his projects. We've learnt a lot from Eero, even though he's not here anymore, and the building has very much dictated a lot of the solutions that we have ended up with. Hello. The entire building is full of design details evoking the period it hails from, namely the late 1950s and early 1960s. In the Francis, a wine bar named after the embassy's first ambassador, Francis E. Willis, we come across an eye-catching mosaic that could also be from that era. But no, explains Marianne Paulson. This is an artwork by Australian artist Diana Giorgetti. She is a painter and we turned it into a mosaic. And our very clever mosaic artisans in Italy in a town called Spilimbergo near Venice, Travis Sanuto Mosaics helped make this work. So we've come down flight of stairs. Yes, and now we're standing underneath the atrium. We haven't filled the building full of sarin and furniture, but it was very important for us to pay homage to him. And this particular room, we call it the sarin and dining room. And here, all you see is Saarinen. The Saarinen Room is part of the Wienland Brasserie. Food writer, TV presenter and entrepreneur Andreas Wierstar heads the embassy creative team and developed this and all the other eateries and bars throughout the building. He first gained interest in this place through his uncle, who grew up in the neighbourhood. 
he used to go here to listen to jazz records because at that time the selection was really bad in the shops. In this room where we're now, the old auditorium now, it's a part of the restaurant, that is where you could you know, see cowboy movies and listen to lectures about the dangers of uh, communism and, and also sort of cultural events. It was meant as an open building and then uh, because of the security situation around diplomacy and the United States' position in the world, it closed up. And now we're proud to open it up again. Andreas Viesta has put a lot of thought into creating an international feel to the embassy's culinary offerings in a diplomatic way that fits with the history of the place. We've got a rooftop bar with a tiny restaurant that is based on a wood-fired oven. That is really southern Europe... Uh, meets Northern Europe, bound by the Atlantic, because we've got an English chef who's grown up in Portugal and spent a lot of time here in Norway. Uh, whereas uh, the wine bar, we uh, have a, an Israeli chef who has worked a lot in the sort of progressive Middle Eastern cooking. And here we are now is Vinland, the brasserie, our main restaurant. And it is a kind of a modern brasserie. It's not a French brasserie. It's not a New York brasserie. We tend to think of it as a, like a triangle a brasserie that's travelled from Paris to New York and back to Oslo. Going from a cultural hub to heavily guarded fortress and back to a cultural and gastronomical meeting place, this American embassy definitely continues to serve an important mission. Perhaps the man behind the original embassy, architect and designer Eero Saarinen, said it best in this clip from a 2019 documentary on Detroit Public TV. We have to remember that architecture is not just here to give space and shelter for man, but architecture also has the purpose of marking and enhancing man's time on Earth. For Monocle Radio, I'm Lars Bevanger in Oslo. Thanks for that, Lars. Now, joining me now is the arts and culture communications specialist and writer, Isabella Orlando, who's listening to the, that report. Good morning, Isabella. Welcome to Monocle on Saturday. Good morning, Emma. Now you are—you're an expert in this sort of repurposing of of buildings of historical significance. And last I was talking about sort of like the diplomatic force fortress of a U.S. embassy that's turned into a place of you know luxury, joy, relaxation. Yeah, so I studied heritage and travel and the connection between them, and they really do go hand in hand. And I think Ambassador is a really great example of that in motion. I think with buildings like this, they can be really hard to maintain because, first of all, they're super expensive. And second of all, unless they're transformed into public institutions or private institutions or places that people can continue to have a connection with, they sort of lose their significance over time and kind of become skeletons of the past rather than sites of living heritage. And that makes for kind of this question of what do we do with these cultural monuments in order to help maintain their meaning and help kind of withhold their integrity, but also allow people to continue to engage with them in a really active way. It certainly needs the right guiding hand and purse behind it, doesn't it? Because I was just thinking a little bit about, what you know, looking at the events in Manchester this week, this week when we saw Chanel turn up and transform a street for its metier d'art show and then having um, an enormous reception in the 
or the old uh, but beautifully repurposed Victoria baths, which had been a public place, had fallen to bits, and then money has has turned it into a cultural centre. Last year, it was in Dakar in 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 Senegal, and Chanel had ploughed money into the old uh, Palais de Justice and had again had helped to transform it into a into a public place. One very much got the impression that there was financial investment, but there was also investment in the sense of of place at that point. Absolutely. I think you bring up a really great example because the luxury fashion sector is kind of notorious for this. Like, for example, I can think of a Louis Vuitton shop in Palma de Mallorca that has apparently, according to a friend of mine, occupied a building that was falling out of use, but similarly had these amazing rooms. I think there's also like a a Zara shop that's slightly less high end, but similar idea, kind of commercial venues and brands coming into these spaces that hold a lot of, I guess they hold a lot of visual significance of luxury, but also just this opulence of certain past eras that can't really be replicated. And if it is, it feels a bit gaudy. And so there's this wonderful, wonderful opportunity, not to mention that it's much more sustainable, I think, to go into older buildings and kind of restore them slightly or dress them up in order to serve a purpose for today. And that allows that link to remain strong because again, you're giving people an opportunity to form new memories and associations with a place. And precisely, as you said, it is about placemaking and forming connections with the spaces, the buildings that we have engaged with and lived in and occupied over time. So it's super interesting to me to see how the private sector can come in and actually do a really serviceable thing by selecting these buildings over, for example, the glossy new um, the glossy new site. And I think actually those, especially in creative industries, those sites, those sites of historical significance bring a lot of sort of patina and texture and story to something like a Chanel campaign, which could otherwise be seen as somewhat superficial. Um, still with us is Yasmin Abdel-Majid, the uh, writer and broadcaster. You've been listening to that. And I mean, as a resident of London, we are seeing this happening all the time, St Pancras Hotel becoming a super duper. The, the 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 idea of the transformation of a previously unworkable old building into a, an absolute luxury destination is 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 a hugely important thing here in London. Definitely, and there are so many buildings you walk into, and you're like, and you know, either you notice or you're told that this sort of harks back to the Victorian era it was built. I mean, even when I first moved to London, um, the the building that I moved into was part of the first social housing ever built in like the late 1800s in like the first social housing in the country actually built off the back of um, a quite famous set of maps called the Charles Booth poverty maps where this this young businessman and town planner went around the London and marked every street based on his idea of their class, you know, wealthy all the way to semi-criminal. And the area of Arnold Circus was all black. So it was, you know, on his map. So it was re- like reduced to rubble. The the slums, I think the, the word, I remember watching a documentary, the average life expectancy in that area was 35 years old. They fully reduced it down to rubble, built this incredible social housing. Of course, it, it didn't go... It didn't go quite to plan, but I think it's quite interesting to be living in and to... I mean, I have mixed feelings about it, though, because at least I think with with this um, housing estate, some of it is still council housing, but a lot of the older buildings that we're talking about get built, get turned into luxury projects, which then seem to be much more focused on a commercialised or profit motive um, 
agenda. And and that breaks my heart a little bit because some of the best buildings are ones that aren't open access to everybody. Um, I think that what the UK does well is, you know, the National Trust, for example. Some buildings go into the National Trust, which means that anybody can kind of visit them and, and they're part of public access. But, you know, there was one um, members club recently that actually closed down and they had bought this enormous site, beautiful site, and redone it in Croydon, which is in South London. Um, and they have, they've had to close down recently, partly because they didn't get, get enough membership. But also, I think, partly because the local people in the local area were like, this is not something that we can all be part of. You know, we're not all going to give a bunch of money to to go into a space that would have been publicly available in the past. And I think this is this is a tension really with some of this heritage stuff that we're talking about is how do you where do you get the money from to to bring these places back to life to have it I loved what was said about living heritage, not just a sort of relic of the past. Is it a museum? Is it a, a site of play and fun? I don't know, but I I wish for more of it to be for everybody. There's also um the the idea isn't there, Isabella, of not just a building being repurposed, but um, if anybody's been to the astonishing Italian city of Matera twenty thirty years ago, it was absolutely falling apart. It was it was crumbling. But um, the UN has still sort of stepped in and turned it into a world heritage site, and as a result, an entire community and town has not just been preserved, but it's been totally, re, you know, reborn to the point where it was in a Bond film. I mean, it, this is an astonishing story, isn't it, Isabella? Yeah, absolutely. And I do really agree with some of the things that have been said. Um, but yes, I think it is it is a delicate balance. And Matera is a great example of that, because that's a place where both a basically a public program being named 2019 European Capital of Culture and UN World Heritage Status, all, all of that it fosters opportunity for business, which can then support local enterprise. So it's, it is, I see what you're saying about big, um, big companies kind of taking over large spaces and making them inaccessible to the communities. But there is sort of this other side of the coin where local restaurants can come up in these rock carved caves in Matera, which has been consistently occupied since the Neolithic. So you can imagine the layers and layers of heritage known and unknown in that space it's really really magical there are hotels that are carved into the into the rock that you can stay in that used to be meditated in by monks like it's it's a really really special place and i think yeah there's definitely like a middle ground between the luxury level and the public level because especially also in the in the uk museums are publicly funded too and so that becomes a balancing act with funding and ensuring that those that those public institutions are sustainable. So I think places like Matera are great examples for how that can be done in a way that really pays homage to the past, kind of elevates what the local, what local enterprise, what opportunities local enterprise have available to them by kind of putting it on the map, on the world stage and welcoming people there. Yeah. That sense of localness is also important in, in taking the building's use and purpose forward, isn't it, Isabella? That um, a few weeks ago I was in Munich and I went to the Rosewood Hotel. Recently it opened in the site of an old, in two sites, in, in the site of an old palace, but in, in Munich's old 19th century bank as well. So these were two enormous 
city buildings, which are now the most beautiful luxury hotel. But there was a real care taken to make sure that the wood that was used was local, that the craftspeople that were we, we used to bring them in were, were local, that the food that they serve now, I mean, they, they go to a lake uh, about two hours drive up the road into Austria to fish out the trout for, for, for lunch. What you can do at that point, if done intelligently, Isabella, is, is you can take that concept of luxury, but you can make sure that it has a very strong sense of relevance to the to the location. Absolutely. And I think thinking about it, as you've just laid it out, like from start to finish in terms of the entire restoration process is a really good way to think about this. And there's another example in um, Morocco that we're a heritage organization. So kind of public sector here to restore old buildings partnered with the luxury hotelier to revive an ancient granary and transform it into a luxury hotel. But like you say, using local craftsmanship, local knowledge of how to build buildings and restore buildings in this way that had real significance to the kind of community and sense of place and sense of culture. And even being somebody who works on these types of sites, you can form a connection with them, even if you're not a guest staying in the hotel per se. So there's a kind of it's very nebulous and there is like there are many ways that we can think about this in ways that people can engage with them. And who's doing this well? I mean, I immediately thought of what's happening with the Paris 2024 Olympics insofar as the the the, the policy there is not to build new big statement buildings, which is strange for a country which, you know, had a president like François Mitterrand who did nothing but build new buildings to try and preserve his legacy. But the legacy that the Paris 2024 Olympics is going to be repurposing of existing buildings to make sure that you know, A, the, the carbon footprint and the sustainability issues are addressed intelligently, but also to make people feel as if that the, the, the city in its existing form is suddenly going to benefit from, from something for a, for a longer time. I mean, who else is doing this right, Isabella? Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a great example. And I, the, the Olympics are a notorious example of kind of doing the classic thing of implanting a brand new city. But I mean, it brings to mind the east side of London, which is now being revived in this way where a lot of existing buildings are being used to create educational spaces, museum spaces. So the VNA is opening a site. I think UCL has opened a site um, for their campus on the east side of London. So sort of Stratford area, which similarly was used for the Olympics a few years ago. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting situation. I'm not actually sure if some of the East London cultural sites are now using Olympic built buildings. But I think that's a really interesting example because the Olympics tend to be an example where a new suite of facilities will be constructed out of kind of out of plain air. It feels like they come up so fast, but then when the Olympics goes, there's kind of no use for those buildings. So if that is what's being repurposed, then that is kind of a, a, a more recent example of this pattern of kind of use and reuse and reuse, which has really gone on since like ancient times. I mean, Roman history is full of emperors building new things to, like you say, establish their memory, but also reviving old things to kind of communicate another attitude towards the past. And so the choices that we make about the spaces we inhabit and the way that policymakers, companies, public institutions go about re inhabiting older spaces is always loaded with meaning. Um, but it's often kind of just below like our conscious level. We, we're aware of it, but we're not really thinking about it. 
Isabella Orlando, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Saturday. Still with me is Yasmin Abdelmajid. I like the idea of the choices we make about the spaces we inhabit. It's like good ghosts, isn't it? Yeah, and it also, I think that um, we can sometimes underestimate how much, um, or maybe maybe it's just me, maybe I just underestimate how much the environment we're in has an active role in how we engage in a space, but also with the people around us. I'm always fascinated by you know, learning about whether it's town planning or streetscaping and how much some, something as simple as, you know, putting trees along a street um, can have an impact on, you know, the, the, the climate on the street, the temperature in that environment, um, the thinking about how people engage with each other. Does, does the building encourage people to chat in the hallway or not? And, uh, yeah, I think it's um, the more that we can maybe even connect with our own past... Um, We've got a couple of minutes left to quickly uh, touch on a final story. I think uh, you wanted to talk about Benjamin Zephaniah, um, born uh, a man from Birmingham. So I had the opportunity to interview him a couple of times and it was like having a room full of of happy electricity when he came in. Um, His his voice will be sadly missed because of the the fact that he was A, a brilliant poet, B, came from such an um, unusual position insofar as he couldn't read or write for a very large part of his Mm -hmm. early life, but also managed to, to sort of build so many bridges. That's right. The passing of Benjamin Zephaniah is a real is a real loss and will be felt really deeply. Um, I'm part of the Black Writers Guild here in the UK, which is, you know, a, a, a collection of writers from Black Caribbean and Black African descent. And there will be actually a sort of memorial held for him um, this week because he was such a force um, for talking, for, for advocating for black people in the UK, ad, sort of challenging institutions and empire. He famously um, rejected the offer of an OBE, which is the Order of the British Empire, um, in, in 2003, so 20 years ago now. And, and I think was one of the first kind of very public examples of, of a writer sort of pushing back. Again. He, he, he wrote this piece saying, my whole, my whole position in life is to challenge empire. How could I accept um, to be an, a member of or, or part of the order of? And also I think what he did was he democratised poetry and literature for a lot of young people, especially young black people. Um, you know, he wrote over 30 books for adults and for teenagers and children. And there was just one excerpt of a, of a, a poem published in 94 that the New York Times shared, which I thought, you know, um, in in the spirit of Christmas, it might be worth sharing. So he he became vegan at thirteen, which gives you a sense of his kind of single, or I guess not single mindedness, but how sure he was of himself and his values at a young age. And this poem, "Talking Turkeys," he says, "Be nice to your turkeys this Christmas, because turkeys just want to have fun. Turkeys are cool. Turkeys are wicked, and every turkey has a mum." Oh, how sweet. <laughs> Which you, you can just, you're like, oh, you can see, you know, he's taught in schools. Even even with the creation of the Black Writers Guild a few years ago, he was a huge supporter and has always been a supporter of um, of young people and black people in the country. And I think his his presence will be sorely Indeed, missed. Indeed, when, when the announcement was made on the radio, my son, he's mm. 11, said, oh, no, I really like Benjamin Zephaniah. Oh, this gosh. is a child who doesn't read a book. Um, sorry, son. <laughs> um, but 
but you know, taught at school, it was he Zephaniah's name is powerful, it's relevant, mm. it's fun, it's it's a it's a real loss because you, you have a you have a writer who, who touched so many people. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Yasmin uh, Abdel Majid for coming into the studio. Thanks also to Isabella Orlando and to our producer and studio engineer Mariella Bevan. Monocle on Saturday returns next week, but stay tuned all day. We're at the Christmas market. It's pouring, but it doesn't matter because it's amazing. Uh, it's starting in 20 minutes. Minutes to come down if you can. Uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast, well, you've got Sunday to come down too. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.